Welcome. We're so glad to be with you today. As you noticed, Alex and I are still up here together co-teaching through our vision series for 2022. Uh, During this series over the last several weeks, we've been asking ourselves the question, what does God want us to do in 2022 through the lens of our kingdom values? We are on week three of this series, so if you weren't here last week and or the week before, uh, we would encourage you to jump on the podcast or YouTube Uh, Two weeks ago, we specifically focused on our kingdom value of intentional formation and asked the question, how could we become a people of prayer in 2022? Last week, we focused on our kingdom value of holistic justice and how to become an interruptible people this year. Today, we're going to continue our vision series with our kingdom value of courageous hospitality. But before we get started, I want to take a moment to remind us of our vision statement and anchor our kingdom values uh, within that statement. You know, Midtown Church exists to renew the reputation of the local church by revealing the kingdom of Jesus in Kansas City. You know, we recognize that this is a very ambitious goal, but nonetheless one that we want to strive for. And here's why. It's not to say that as a church we have some secret sauce or that we're better than other churches, but rather it's a recognition that we currently live in a post-Christian, post-modern society in which the church is seen as a relic in most people's lives. It's considered a hindrance to progress, something that no longer should take a seat in the public sphere. And as a church, we want to say, what would it be like to renew that reputation in people's lives of the church to truly reveal who Jesus is? And to do that, to achieve that ambitious goal, we go to the scriptures and we ask the question, what did Jesus's earliest church look like? What is Jesus's design or intention for his church? And we find the answers to those questions throughout scripture, but specifically within Acts 2, 42 through 47, which is where we anchor our four kingdom values. The last two weeks, we focused on that first part of verses 42 through 45. And today we're going to focus on verses 46 through 47a, where it says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. As we outline our goals for 2022 through the lens of our kingdom value, courageous hospitality, we want to ask the question, how can we become hospitable people this year? So today we're going to discuss our current culture of anonymity, which I know that may seem uh, somewhat disconnected, maybe from this idea of hospitality, but bear with us. It's very much related, right? How can we live in a culture of isolation uh, when Jesus has called us to be with people? Then we're going to talk about what life around a table looks like in Christ's kingdom. And lastly, how we can become a hospitable people in 2022. Yeah, as we talk about a culture of anonymity, kind of a a thinker or a book comes to mind, and and that thinker is Harvey Cox. He's an academic, cultural commentator, theologian, and all around just brilliant thinker. And he has this book I was reading not too long ago called The Secular City. And in this book, he argues 
from a Christian perspective, it is good that our cities are without a singular religious commitment because our God is at work both in the secular as much as he is in the sacred. And at one point in this book, The Secular City, Harvey Cox makes the argument that the anonymity that we experience in urban life is a good thing. So if you've grown up in a small town, um, one thing that's very clear is that you do not have the opportunity to hide or disengage. In small town living, everyone knows your name, everyone knows your family, and everyone knows your business. And Harvey suggests that when we romanticize the small town, urban living, or the small town and small town living, then those living in urban or larger cities feel the pressure to replicate those intimate, familiar, and kinship relationships in our urban space. But the sheer amount of people makes it impossible um, to have those types of relationships. And so Harvey's solution is to enjoy the anonymity of urban life as the freedom to choose who you want to maintain a friendship with. Those you choose not to interact with on an intimate level should be treated with respect. You should, you know, be respectful for anyone you come into contact with, but that you shouldn't have to necessarily feel the pressure to take a relationship any further. Harvey Cox argues that it is okay that you don't know the name of your mailman, barista, or neighbor that you are free to choose those whom you want to have a relationship with. And to his credit, Harvey Cox's theory of urban anonymity frees us from the pressure to create intimate relationships with the numerous individuals we interact with throughout the day. The anonymous urbanite is free to handpick to select the voices, friendship, opinions that shape their life. And thus, I believe his theory finds both its appeal and its demise because Harvey Cox's theory of urban anonymity is presented as an expression of freedom, but there's very little freedom in being being free to choose to create your homogenous web of relationships. Left to my own devices, why would I select friendships and relationships that challenge any of my own pre-existing ideas or comfortabilities? If uh, or we were listening to the radio just the other day and there was this story about knowing your neighbors in the good old days when you could go over uh, to so-and-so's house for a cup of sugar or, you know, if you were locked out of your home, you know, you could go to Mrs. Jones' house and Miss Jones would take you to mom's work and mom could give you a key and she'd take you back or you could hang out with Mr. Rogers. It was this <laughs> idyllic idea of a neighborhood. Um, and living in a city, we know that those days are gone. We're very adept at limiting the interactions that involve removing AirPods or the exchange of conversation. We've grown fluent in communicating paragraphs through a look, body language, or a single word. One would think that in the age of social media, they would allow public discourse and openness to new ideas. However, just the opposite has occurred. We're more tribalistic and we're more ideological than any other um, time in history. This is to say we need more experiences with flesh and bone, not less. We desperately need people that challenge our own ideas of what is good. We need people that challenge our own ideas of what the city could look like. 
And the people I admire most look for more human connections, not simply for more people that look like them. And in the church, we've adopted this posture or this theory of anonymity. It's okay to have your small group of 10.30 a.m. friends that you can catch up with about the weekend, but they shouldn't ask anything of you that goes beyond that hour window or so. They shouldn't ask anything of you that requires sacrifice or more time. And what we've called church community are the people I make small talk with while I'm pouring coffee. Maybe I'm crazy or just daring enough to believe that the vision of community that Christ has in mind is far more costly and far more intimate, far more messy, and far more beautiful than what we've settled for. We cannot settle for a theory of anonymity that makes us feel okay about the fact that we don't know any of our neighbors. We believe that Christ is beckoning us into more relationships, not less. We believe that Christ is calling us to be a beacon of friendship amid the lonely and isolated. We believe that Christ is calling us to be a family of support amid a culture of anonymity. We believe that we start to become a people of hospitality simply by committing to a meal. You know, from the ministry of Jesus, we know the power of food and conversation. In fact, throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either on his way to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal. We see this throughout all of Scripture, throughout all of that book of Luke. It was his habit to eat and drink with sinners that brought the Pharisees' anger upon him in Luke 5. It was at a dinner that a broken woman came with an expensive bottle of perfume and poured it on the feet of Jesus. It was at a dinner that Jesus instructed his disciples to invite those on the margins to the table. He says in Luke 14, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, those that are very different from you, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. It was after a meal with Jesus that the notorious Zacchaeus declared, Behold, the Lord, or excuse me, behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Zacchaeus came to the realization of his sin after a meal with Jesus. It was in the breaking of bread that the two disciples who were heartbroken by the death of the rabbi realized that he was not dead but alive. Over a simple meal, they realized the resurrection of Jesus. And it was in the last few hours of his life, Jesus chose to spend it with his disciples saying, I eagerly desire to eat this meal with you and do this in remembrance of me. Many of us are familiar with this last story as it is told by pastors every time we take communion. But what if Jesus meant more than just communion? I would like to posture along with many biblical thinkers that he meant much more than just do this with a tiny cracker and a cup of juice. Rather, he was saying, do this. It was an invitation to life around a table. 
in remembrance was not simply a reflection of the cross and Christ's death, but the full proclamation of Jesus's story. That is to say, when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, he's commanding us to do life around the table, proclaiming his story. And it is this kind of life around the table that describes what the earliest followers of Jesus did. There's this painting called the Fractio Panis that was discovered by archaeologists in the 1800s. And it's believed to be the earliest painting or realistic depiction we have of the early church. So it would have been painted within the first 150 years of the church after Jesus had already died, been resurrected, and had ascended. This painting, Fractio Panis, in English means breaking of bread. And you'll notice in this painting there are five men, one woman, and one Messiah around a table. Many believe that this depiction of the early church was truly what life was like for them. That is to say, the early church understood that as they gathered around a table, it was as if Jesus was right there with him. Now, obviously, they knew Jesus had ascended, right, already into heaven. But they knew that the table was the center of their spiritual life and practice and that every time they gathered together around a meal, Jesus was present with him. This painting is the physical representation of do this in remembrance of me. This is why we gather weekly around a table in microchurch and weekly around the communion table on a Sunday morning. The simple call to action is to eat and drink with people as the family of God proclaiming the story of Jesus. As we look at Luke's description of that first church, we see a community devoted to doing this in remembrance of Christ. We've read Acts 2, 42 through 47 at nauseum, so I won't read it once more. But as we look at it, you'll notice that Luke describes four specific activities. That they were devoted to the teachings of the apostles, to fellowship and breaking bread, that they were sharing, that they had all things in common, and that they were devoted to the prayers. In five verses, breaking bread, fellowship, or receiving food is used five times. Think about that. As Luke is writing a historical account describing the activities of the early church, he mentions breaking bread, hanging out together, and eating five times. When I asked Cassie how your day was, she never mentions, oh, I ate breakfast, I ate lunch, and I'm going to eat dinner. Like, eating isn't typically what we think of as we're describing our activities. But those first believers, those first Christians, that first church, learned a new rhythm in which they did life together, daily sharing a meal in one another's home. Either they did this so often that Luke couldn't avoid mentioning it, or that it was so important to them that Luke had to mention it. And either way, we're reminded that the table, eating together, was a major part of the early church. This is to say that the early church was not built on a great public media campaign. It was not built on the prowess of its first preachers. It was not built on a Disney World experience for its kiddos. It was built house by house, 
table by table, meal by meal. It was built by doing life around a table. And we see this throughout the New Testament as Paul writes letters to his churches and passages like Romans 16, Colossians 4, and Philemon 1, that it was the church in the home. It was church around a table. And so we commit as a church to joining with Jesus by embodying love through radically ordinary hospitality. In doing so, we welcome the stranger, not as an enemy, but as a friend. And we anticipate a future in which the entire family of God will share a meal prepared by Jesus. Habitual hospitality is a fundamental element of our Christian identity, for it is in our hospitality that we reveal the hospitality of Christ. The beauty of gathering around the table is that the stranger becomes a neighbor and a neighbor becomes family. The New Testament term for hospitality is philoxenia, and it essentially means uh, love of stranger. In fact, it is the exact opposite of xenophobia or fear of the stranger. This is to say that courageous hospitality is the space in which we transform strangers into neighbors. In courageous hospitality, we refuse to be anonymous. We refuse to hide behind schedules and hustle and bustle. And we engage with our neighbors. We create relationships with those who we don't know yet. And we dive headlong into human community. Our dear friends, Nathan and Crystal, the founders of Agape Pomodra, have spent five or six years living this out by determining to intertwine their schedules, their lives, and their futures with the Congolese community of Kansas City. They spend almost all of their time around these families that are different from them. And in doing so, they learn more about the nature of God's family. I love our nights at microchurch where this mismatched group of people come together over brats, prayer, scripture, and mission, all with an Encanto soundtrack. It's ordinary. It's messy. It's on paper plates, but it's beautiful, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. This is the type of people that we should be, that we love hanging out with one another but that we also love expanding our circle of friends to include both those that are close to Christ and those that are far from him. Gathering around a table is not simply what we do as a church. It is who we are as the people of God. For us to be hospitable people, we must learn to welcome all around our table. One of the ways that we learn to resist this culture of anonymity or isolation and to become hospitable people is simply through microchurch. This is my greatest argument for microchurch. Microchurch is simply a small gathering of people around prayer, scripture, and mission, and a simple meal. So here is my encouragement today. If you've never been a part of a microchurch, now is the time to join one. Joining a microchurch will make it nearly impossible to exist in isolation or anonymity. Cannot be alone when you exist as part of a microchurch. To do this, simply fill out the form that Amanda mentioned earlier during announcements. It's midtownkc.church forward slash microchurch and someone will respond with the information. 
Uh, my second call to action or my encouragement to you would be if you are a part of a microchurch, if you have been for a while, maybe now is simply the time to start a new one. If you want to grow in your ability to be hospitable, to welcome people from all different walks of life into your home for a meal, start a new microchurch. Simply talk with your new microchurch leader as to what those steps may look like. Uh, you know, last year, uh, Amanda and Katrina started a new microchurch in uh, April, May of last year, and they simply did it by saying, what would it look like for me, Katrina, Amanda, me, Katrina, and Alex Davies, another gal that goes to our church, uh, what it, would it look like for us to just start a community in uh, Alex's apartment complex, Alex Davies' apartment complex, simply to be a neighbor to those around us. Uh, and to hopefully have some really wonderful gospel conversations, to be hospitable to people around us, to open up our, our homes, our doors, to have a nice meal. And I love the story of their microchurch because they went from having three people in May to now eight people that are a part of their microchurch simply through neighborliness and hospitality. One of my favorite stories is their microchurch they hosted outside in the apartment complex's courtyard. And it just so happened that it coincided with the apartment complex's Wine Wednesday. And so they would have people filtering in from their Wine Wednesday into their microchurch where they're praying prayers and talking about scripture. And so for them, very much becoming a microchurch is a way for them to grow in their hospitality. And so if you've been a part of a microchurch for a while and you're like, yes, that sounds attractive to me. I want to start something like this. Like I said, simply reach out to your uh, microchurch leader and talk to them about it. And if you're sitting here today and you're not part of a microchurch, one of the best ways to start growing in that hospitality, that neighborliness, becoming an hospitable person is by joining one and seeing it demonstrated week in and week out and learning to demonstrate it yourself. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.